Welcome to the Misophonia Podcast. This is Season 5, Episode 7. My name is Adil Ahmad, and I have Misophonia. Well, this week marks the second anniversary of this podcast. And to mark the occasion, there are really few people I could think of that have had as big of an impact on Misophonia awareness as my guest. And by the way, a few of the other ones are still coming up this season, and I'll leave them as a bit of a surprise for now. But today, I have Dr. Jennifer Brout. If you've been reading about Misophonia long enough, it doesn't take long to come across Dr. Brout, who I get to call Jennifer on the show. She's a psychologist and misophonia sufferer and parent of a misophonia sufferer who has been pushing very hard for misophonia awareness and research since the 90s. She co-founded the Duke Misophonia Research Center and is co-director of misophoniaeducation.com and the International Misophonia Research Network. She has written a number of articles about misophonia over the years and books, including the new, the new one, Regulate, Reason, Reassure, A Parent's Guide to Understanding and Managing Misophonia. Jennifer is especially interested in understanding and helping children and families with misophonia. She, as many people know, is very passionate about misophonia, and, and this was a very fun and thought-provoking conversation that went into places I didn't expect, like memory reconsolidation research. Before I get to all that, I also want to welcome our new Patreon sponsor, who wants to stay anonymous despite my promise of giving a shout-out to anyone who supports the show on Patreon. If you want to join, please go to patreon.com slash podcast. I'm hoping to get human-reviewed transcripts of every episode to have online for anyone who is more inclined to read about these experiences heard here, as well as also for anyone who wants to use the information here in research. And of course, check the Patreon page for more information on all the swag I'm giving away to patrons. Even if you can't do Patreon, please share this episode on social media. It's a great way to raise misophonia awareness without having to write like a, a long post about your own experiences. You might introduce another misophone to the term and start a conversation. In the meantime, you can follow the show at Misophonia Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or Misophonia Show on Twitter. All right, that's enough about the podcast. Let's get right into this week's conversation with the legendary Dr. Jennifer Brout. Well, yeah, let's just, uh, I guess, jump into it. And let me just say, Jennifer, welcome to the podcast. Great Thank to have you here. Thank you so much, Adil. Do you want to, in your own words, would you like to kind of like, yeah, tell us sure, well, kind of like you, brief. you are? Um, sure. I'm a psychologist. I have misophonia. One of my children, who is a grown-up, has misophonia. And I've been working both in terms of trying to get research started back in the 90s on this disorder that at this point, or at that point rather, had no name. And I founded a program with Dr. Rosenthal at Duke many, many years ago. And I have done a lot of, I guess, research advocacy is what I call it. So advocating for research um, before the disorder had a name. And I work with mostly children with misophonia and teenagers with misophonia. And uh, yeah, that's my background. Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure a lot of people listening have either you know read your articles, whether it's in Psychology Today or, or whatnot, or probably maybe read, read your book, attended your um, seminars. Um, maybe, yeah, maybe, uh, you know, I haven't 
talked to many uh, you know, psychologists or, or professionals who've known about misophonia go, dating back to the 90s. So I'm um, curious about kind of how that, how that came about. Like, how long did you know you had misophonia and how did you put the pieces together in terms of, wow, this is something that I need to like pay attention to separate well, from other me, conditions? For me, sorry to interrupt, it would have been dating of back course. to 70s as I or maybe even the 1960s as I really aged myself there um, I always knew that I had some kind of sensitivity to sound now of course I wouldn't have called it misophonia I just knew that sound really bothered me I didn't know that it was really specific sounds although I think as I got older there might have been some awareness that it was particular sounds and for me and I don't want to, you know, name triggers, but it was very specific trigger sounds um, in a certain realm. And uh, but when I had my kids, I have triplets and they're 27 now. When I started to see what was happening with my daughter, who showed symptoms very, very young, you know, we're talking two and a half, three. So when I started to see that she was reacting to sounds, well, I, I, to back up a little bit, I started to see that she was just having, I mean, I, well, I, hear, I see, I go back to being a mother and not knowing how to describe mm -hmm. it. I, I have no words, but, you know, just completely flipping out out of nowhere. You know, I started to put it together. This is, this is sound-based. And she would say with her little tiny two-and-a-half-year-old voice, no chewing, no chewing, no chewing. So it started oh. to become obvious to me. Uh, and, you know, I went to a number of psychologists, because I was a psychologist, um, and I was told that I was crazy. And, you know, um, I said, but I have this thing, too. And I started to talk about my trigger sounds. And, you know, we were just told we were crazy. It didn't matter that I was a psychologist. Uh, yeah. And I found some solace, finally, um, from occupational therapists who at least had a term for being over-responsive to sensory stimuli called, you know, over-responsive, sensory over-responsivity. And within that was something called auditory over-responsivity. So at least, while they were not necessarily able to treat it, at least they did not treat my daughter like she was crazy or mm. me and ot's were able to help us kind of learn to just work with our nervous systems both of i mean i went through ot pretty much with my daughter um and helped us to learn how to self-regulate a little bit um it, it was hard to get it to work in the face of the trigger sound and that's what my book is about um and, and sort of that's the history. And so what I tried to do is bring together what I learned from occupational therapy into psychology. And that's how I ended up starting the program at Duke. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and and that, that program at Duke, I think, started um, some years later in the, in the mid-2000s, I believe? Or was it a little yeah. later? Uh, yeah. Now I, I, I'm going to be pressed to remember the exact date. Uh, oh, it doesn't yeah. have to be exact. <laughs> In the mid Actually, we need to know down to the hour. But embarrassed uh, <laughs> that I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but yes, and it was originally called the Sensory Processing and Emotion Regulation Program. And, you know, my goal was to get psychologists to understand that there is something else going on here beside just, you know, I mean, 
the names for it ranged from okay you know you have um oppositional defiant disorder which which really got me so angry i mean my wow. child was not oppositional yeah. defiant which is a stupid yeah. classification anyway um i was not oppositional defiant you know, nobody you know so part of what i was doing because i was working on the dsm on the team to get sensory processing disorders into the dsm-5 which it got in under autism just a couple of sensory over responsivity and under responsivity but the whole thing didn't get in but, but that's a whole other story so eventually i came to understand very clearly that misophonia is not the same as auditory over responsivity and you know clearly it is not the same disorder but some people do have both and some of the skills from occupational therapy sensory integration training can be used because they they're they're bottom up they work on the physiological neurophysiological calming they're not just cognitively based because and again this is what my my coping skills method is about you know when you're in that misophonia moment cognition cannot be accessed right. and i find it i mean at least it, it can't for most people that i know with misophonia so you know cognitive work is great as an adjunct how you feel about the disorder maybe how you you know feel about living with the disorder but it's not going to help you in that moment you need to use skills that calm the autonomic or sympathetic nervous system arousal otherwise you know another way to put it is a fight flight system mm -hmm. so I i'm blabbing and i'm not letting you ask me questions i'm sorry no 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 actually i mean one of the things i wanted to ask you next was like uh kind of the history of kind of your um your development of your uh of your program or, or your your um basically when 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 did you start kind of thinking about treating misophonia in your clients and kind of how did this break like maybe a little bit describe like what is this regulation um method that you have well i was very fortunate um when i was in school and i was actually in school after before and after i had my triplets and i had some really amazing professors and it, this is very interesting actually they were infant mental health specialist so when you think about when you're dealing with an infant you can't rely on cognition and you can't rely on behavior therapy you're yeah. relying on the nervous system you're dealing with their physiologic system yes you may call it emotions my baby's upset the baby's upset but all of the systems are so intertwined with infants and that's when i learned oh i get it now we grow up but we're really still driven by the same things. And the other part of what really made me understand um, what's really going on, and I'm not a neuroscientist, but I became close friends with really just a, an amazing neuroscientist, Dr. Joseph E. Ledoux. He's also a really great musician, but that's another story. No, I'm interested uh, in that too. Yeah. 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 
and then you could try to get him on it'd be great um and so he was the neuroscientist who way back in the 70s um when neuroscience wasn't even really a field traced the fear circuitry which he now calls the defense circuitry so we're talking again about the amygdala which is where fight flight and i use that just to simplify it it's really fight flight freeze is mediated mm-hmm. and what he has explained to me and i don't do him justice so if he's hearing this for some reason joe i apologize you know we talk about emotions and emotion regulation but when joe explains what an emotion is and we have some great videos of him doing this by the way um when he explains what an emotion is an emotion is an aggregate of both the physiological and many neural systems so within an emotion is the physiologic so and and the cognitive and when we have for example and now i'm i'm adding to what joe said joe didn't say this part but when we have a misophonic response or we're in that moment this response happens in a millisecond that's how fast and going back to joe now that's mm-hmm. how fast that amygdala responds and we are in that sympathetic nervous system arousal within a millisecond so it is very hard to parse out cognition from emotion from what your body's doing and that is what is so incredibly unique to misophonia now you could say a panic attack is somewhat similar but the difference again with misophonia is there is an external stimuli or stimuli that is setting a person's physiological self off mm-hmm. and that if you think about it really unless you're talking about some elements of post traumatic stress disorder which is absolutely you know not related i mean can be related but it's not i don't want to confuse anyone that you know misophonia is not based on trauma but in a sense we are dealing with the only other disorder where the external stimuli is affecting the physiology whereas like in anxiety you know you can be thinking about something and that can set off the nervous system right anxiety you you can it can be not it doesn't have to be stimulated by something external it could be you start to your mind starts to drift in a certain way and then it just kind of snowballs but misophonia is very much uh external stimuli millisecond yeah. later you're think everything's changed yeah. inside your head yeah yeah and that's what i think you know these are the kinds of thoughts that i have you know parsed out about misophonia and i get somewhat upset because i don't see this coming out in the literature except for some of the really good neuroscience is well is is she is ledu did he write the book the synaptic self just to go oh, on yeah. uh, a little tangent okay how did i my bookshelf so i've known about it for a while um because i was looking at coming at it from the synaptic self from a kind of computers programming perspective which is totally uh, off topic but uh <laughs> but yeah uh, but it's it's amazing that the, uh, this is long before you about miss funny was so it's kind of an interesting intersection here um yeah. 
Well, you know, when he when you're talking about the defense response, anytime you have sympathetic nervous system arousal, the amygdala is involved and he is the amygdala guy. He's the person who studied the amygdala first before anyone. Yeah. And he's just, you know, he's a very brilliant neuroscientist and a lot of his work was really, you know, underlies what everyone else is studying in terms of the amygdala and the defense response. And I guess his first book, I think, was The Emotional Brain. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've heard of that one, yeah. So yeah. yeah, he's been on a quest to define what what is an emotion in the brain. And what he has finally said is, emotions don't sit in any part of the brain. Emotions are an aggregate of many different parts and systems of the brain and physiological functioning. And I think that's right. important when you understand misophonia because, you know, we can say it's an emotional response. And yes, it is, but it is also very much a physiologic response or a neurological response. And that's why when I talk about coping skills, you have to do this self-regulation or even co-regulation first. Well, what do you mean by Basically, self-regulation versus co-regulation? Well, self-regulation and co-regulation, again, going back to sort of infant mental health and somewhat to what occupational therapists brought to the table, uh, you know, all the way back to the 70s, but more so really in the 90s, is this idea of working from the bottom up rather than the top down. So working from ways to calm your body. And there are numerous, numerous ways. They're not a panacea. They're not a cure-all. But the idea of focusing on your body and using your sensory systems to bring down the sympathetic response. Because really, you want to bring in the parasympathetic system, which puts the brakes on fight-flight. Rather than standing there in the middle of the misophonic moment, trying to talk yourself out of it, no, we've tried. If we could talk ourselves out of it, then we wouldn't have. We'd be rich. Problems. Somebody would be rich. Yeah. yeah. Right. And we wouldn't have these problems. It's the same with exposure therapy, which is another thing that makes me very distraught. I'm sorry, you didn't ask what makes me distraught, but I just. Oh, no, I, we were going to, yeah, I, well, I wanted to ease into that because I know, I, you know, I know you have, uh, oh, I, most of us, uh, especially someone I'm sure who's been around Miss um, Funny for a while, you've got some, you know, str- strong opinions about what, uh, uh, what's out And there's a lot of conflicting stuff out there in the, in the literature. So it's, uh, and it's an unknown, misunderstood, often dismissed uh, disorder. And yeah. it's only natural that um, we're all passionate about it. So, um well, yeah, maybe let's. You you mentioned a little bit about you know, things you're not seeing in the literature. Are there things? Uh, yeah, I'd love to get to kind of what you'd like to, where you'd like to see the research go. But I'm curious, like, are there directions that you think are maybe not as fruitful that maybe uh, are maybe confusing people? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so first of all, exposure therapy, which I mean, is some to some extent, is misunderstood, regardless irregardless there's no reason to understand it because we don't need it for misophonia because it doesn't work and it in fact is very harmful and at best uncomfortable 
for those mm -hmm. of us with dysphonia. And, you know, unfortunately, I have had this out with a number of psychologists and not every psychologist wants to do exposure therapy, but you know, what happens is, you know, you go to a psychologist or you go to an audiologist or you even go to an occupational therapist, let's say, and they, there's no protocol for how to treat this disorder because there just isn't yet because we don't know enough about it. So what does somebody do? They do what they think is going to work. They think, well, let's say for phobias, maybe for OCD, exposure therapy works. And so they think, well, I'll try that, which, you know, to some degree is irresponsible in my opinion, because it is not a phobia. Mm -hmm. And right. I would rather work on coping skills than treat somebody with something that is going to backfire. So exposure therapy is based on the idea that one will habituate. So that means that one will desensitize to the sound. I don't see that happening. I've never seen that happen. And there has been a few papers written that, you know, once, I'm not going to mention any names, but a particular person said, oh, you know, I, I sort of had, had it out with him and I said, no one's habituating. So what are you doing? You know, no one's desensitizing to the sound. So what are you doing the exposure therapy for? And the answer is distress tolerance. And I said, no, mm -hmm. thank you. Okay. Basically what you're doing is saying you're exposing somebody to these sounds so that they can learn to like grin and bear it. I said, that's not helpful. That's not treatment. That's not helpful. What are you doing? I, I'm getting very dramatic because I do get very passionate. And, you know, so that's something that is going on out there. And I, I would say to anyone who goes to a psychologist who tries to do that, leave. Sorry. Fight or flight or flight. <laughs> Fly away. <Please. laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that... Uh, 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 it's, I guess it's, you know, I was curious where that came from. And I think you made it, uh, uh, you made it uh, obvious that, yeah, it comes from probably OCD and treating phobias. Uh, and maybe it does work in those um, domains, but this is quite different. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know anyone who, uh, when you mention exposure therapy, who has misophonia does not cringe and just, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's just, it's, at least to us, it seems intuitively the wrong, the wrong direction. Um, Absolutely. But, and so what are some of the, uh, so for, okay, so you said like f focusing on maybe in, in focusing on the body during, during the moment, are you, you, are you, is it things like kind of focusing on your breathing or fo fo focusing on your senses, maybe other senses other than hearing? Um, is that kind of why you, what you're, um, not exactly. Uh, okay. Um, I, but that was a good, that's actually not a bad idea. Um, <laughs> That's a total guess. Good idea, actually. Um, what? So what? Has, that's one of the um, wonderful things that has come out of. Uh, there's a great. I think the this site is now sensoryhealth.org. One of the great ideas, not ideas, but that it's actually a huge body of research that has been validated and proven. That's been ignored by psychology because guess what? Psychologists. I'm, I sound so anti-psychology, but psychologists and psychiatrists to some degree don't want to send 
they don't want OT taking over their turf. So there's always turf wars going on. Oh, I can, um, yeah, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that. Anyway, so, yeah, continue. So, you know, and, and while some of it's been, there was a great attempt in, in, you know, the early 2000s to kind of integrate. Uh, and, and that's when I was on the DSM group trying to get sensory processing disorders into the DSM, which is run by the American Psychiatric Association. And, you know, I don't want to point fingers, but I don't think they wanted it in there. So, but from OT, particularly these sort of sensory based theories and practices, we know, for example, that certain things are innately common. Certain things are innately calming rather. And we know this also from infant health. So if you think of like an infant, okay, rocking, what do we do with infants? We rock them, we swaddle them, we put sort of pressure around them. Think of what we do to calm down. I mean, it's almost so simple. We come to calm down physiologically as an adult. We like massage, right? Mm -hmm. Not everyone does, but many of us do. So the idea is, how do you take these things that will change? And, and there are certain breathing exercises that are also helpful. But the, here's the problem. You can, you, know, you can do a massage, and then you come home, and you're still triggered. Although leading a lifestyle where you're trying to keep in sort of lower sympathetic arousal is, is good. Um, but the idea is to take these movements and these proprioceptive input, which is known to bring in the parasympathetic system, which again breaks fight flight, and get them into the misophonia moment without looking ridiculous in public. Um, and that's what took years for me to really figure out. Because even if you go to an OT, they have ways for you to do things and you'll feel, let's say you swing on a swing. Okay, let's say vestibular calms you down. Um, vestibular sense calms you down. You can go swing on a swing. You know, think of what little kids naturally do. Um, and then we stop doing it. Or maybe some of us continue in the form of sports or swimming or uh, whatever. Um, but all of these things that are innately calming to infants, to little kids, you know, um, swinging, rolling, these things are innately calming. Massage, pressure to the muscle and joints. But how do you get these into that moment? So it took me a long, long time to figure out what can I do to take these these kinds of motions and put them into a moment. So that moment while you, when you are escalated. And so I have these very specific kind of little tricks. Um, for example, you we all know stress balls don't work um, for misophonia. What about fidget spinners? <laughs> I mean, fidget spinners for some people are okay as a distraction-ish, um, but yeah. not early you know they're not they're not the end all be all i was but, kidding i think all, all parents from two years ago are sick of those but uh yeah, yeah. Right, exactly <laughs> i can't watch a fidget spinner because i, I can't. right there's a visual Ooh, when you're, when yeah. you're and your misokinesia whatever like collide yeah. Yeah. that's a whole other thing but so you know i use often and, and the disclaimer being please nobody like hurt themselves um but you know i use like a hand gripper often which you use in physical therapy and musicians use them and this gives you a squeeze that is 
hard. So this is not like a little squeeze of a stress ball. This is like a hard squeeze. So that pressure tells your brain lower, lower arousal. So there's oh. all kinds of tricks like this. Um, you know, even if one is sitting in a chair and you push down as though you're trying to push yourself up from the chair. Right. That will tell your brain, slow down. And there's, there's many, many of these. Um, so these are the kinds of things you can do in the moment. And there are other things, of course, you know, if you're at home and, you know, you don't care what anyone's thinking, you can get up and do wall push-ups. You're changing your physiology. That's changing your physiology. Interesting. So you get triggered, um, you, you get up, um, do some wall push-ups, and that kind of tells you, is, is one way to kind of tell your brain to calm down. Yeah. Or just changes your, yeah. Change your physiology. And then you can worry about your cognitions and your emotions. And if you have to leave the room, do some wall push-ups. Do it. Listen, if you're if you can, do some actual real push-ups. Or there's another thing I call an adrenaline release, which is you know if you have to go out of the room and you know do some fast wall push-ups, do some like jogging around the house, whatever you have to do, release the adrenaline because it's in your body. How are you going to get that adrenaline out if you don't do something? You have to bring it down by bringing in the parasympathetic system or you have to release it. So you have to deal with what's going on physiologically first. And what's interesting, deal is that most people, I, when I ask most people, how long does it take you to sort of calm down when you're triggered? Most people will say it takes me two minutes. Some people will say it takes me a half hour. When most people actually kind of just time it, with something as simple as, and, and kind of gross, and this isn't scientific, but let's say heart rate. Most people find that when they are away from the stimuli for like 30 seconds, they go back to what we call homeostasis, which is the neutral state. Once you mm -hmm. know, and, and that's not, that doesn't mean there aren't people who don't continue to sort of ruminate on the sounds, and that's a whole other story, but for most people, you get away from the sound, the whole thing stops. So if you need to go in another room, reset yourself and come back, that's okay. That's not, you see, psychologists would call that avoidance. And I call that taking care of your body. Yeah, I call that, yeah, norm, my normal <laughs> MO. <laughs> yeah. I call that a deal. my life. <laughs> he does, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the you know, getting the energy out, doing, even doing the wall push-up, it's almost kind of your, um, maybe a more productive fight or flight. Cause it's, it's fight or flight can kind of like, um, uh, you're, you're kind of, yeah, changing your physiology, getting your mind off, you know, moving your body, getting the energy out. Yeah. Um, it's, I guess maybe yeah, a more directed, uh, form of fight or flight. You know, you're not, yeah. 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 And you know, the cognitive stuff that I, that I do, really work on is to not go with the do not go with the narrative that people are your trigger i mean we know that people's sounds are certainly the worst triggers for most people 
But, and, and we don't know why, although Sukhbinder Kumar's new paper definitely kind of starts pointing it, us in a direction that we could begin to understand it. Uh, the motor basis for misophonia, which I'm sure you've read. Oh yeah, yeah. We had um, uh, 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 Merced on the uh, Merced on on the, oh, on the podcast. So I should have mentioned her as well. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, fascinating paper, and 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 just you know, and, and when you think about it, if there is a motor component to this, then moving is the best way to combat the trigger, the reactivity to the trigger. So. You know, so just for the people listening, so what Sookbinder and Mercedes, and I apologize that I don't know everyone else's name on the paper by heart, um, pointed out is that when somebody is triggered, the primary motor cortex lights up. And what they hypothesize is that mirror neurons are, there's a hyper mirroring going on. And what mirroring refers to is and this is an example, when a baby is looking at its parent or whomever, and it learns motorically how to smile back, those are, for example, mirror neurons working. So we have within us these specialized neurons that help us to motorically mirror someone else's motor movements. So the auditory, and the visual are conduits to these motor, the mirroring. So just to give you an example, if I'm watching someone chew or if I am hearing someone sniffle, I'm feeling it in my body. That's the hypothesis here. And that's what showed up in the neuroimaging that this team did. And that takes us in a whole other direction for potential treatment and just for potential understanding of what this disorder really is. It's a game changer paper. So if you ask me what research I wanna see done, I wanna see more of that. Um, <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, if you think about the fact that there's a motor component, if I'm feeling someone's invading my space, maybe, I don't know, then moving is really good. So back to the coping skills, when I saw that paper, I was like, oh, okay, so maybe this kind of makes sense why this is somewhat helpful and why, you know, but the cognition part, the narrative of the person, you know, is my trigger is just not helpful. It just doesn't help. Right. No, and, and I think most people who you know, have thought about misophonia enough, um, you know, who have misophonia, I think at least, at least by the time they become an adult have rationalize that okay i try to you know most people have said to me you know i realize now it's not the person it's just i'm i can't process certain sounds properly um but yeah yeah hopefully nobody's um evangelizing that it's a uh, you know the other person is doing it on purpose although i have i have heard stories where some people will use it kind of as a weapon but that's a whole other <laughs> that's a whole other topic uh, yeah, interesting. So yeah, and then the you know that yeah, uh, like you said, the paper is a game changer. It does um, you know it still leaves some questions and opens new questions in terms of things like well, then are people maybe born with this um, condition within the mirror neurons, or uh, do you have any I don't know thoughts about um, what maybe causes this in people in the first place? 
I really have no idea. And that's a totally, <laughs> totally fair answer. <laughs> I am clueless. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. And it's such a great question. I do, I do wish that, I mean, there is this myth that, you know, it begins between eight and 12. And I don't, I don't think that's a great myth to be perpetuating because then nobody's going to study young children. Right. And, you know, maybe most people report that they remember having developed these symptoms at age eight through 12. But, you know, what would a parent know what to look for? Like, if I didn't have this, I may have just looked at my child and thought, what is going on there? Taken her to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and accepted that, I don't know, the many diagnoses they offered me from ADHD, oppositional, whatever, you know, um, none of which were true at all. So what a parent doesn't know what to look for. So um, I would like to see more research in the developmental neuroscience mm. area of misophonia, because we, we don't know yeah. how it begins, why this and if if anyone's had time to think about it, it's you, Jennifer. So that's uh, uh, yeah, yeah, a totally fair long. answer. <laughs> <laughs> not, I'm not, I don't mean to age you. I mean, I, or whatever. No, it's, but, yeah, I, it's really <laughs> I look so young in my picture. It was taken but so you do. Long. I am looking at it. And I'm like, oh, that's a lie. <laughs> it's time to no, change no. that picture. <laughs> and, and, and you mentioned, um, you, you know, you mentioned trauma earlier. And, I've, you know, I've, in a lot of my interviews, I've talked to people who either have comorbid conditions or, you know, have experienced trauma in, in the past. Um, you know, and that's come up as, as, maybe something that that can cause this um or at least maybe activate it um do you i don't know if, if you you think you see kind of you think that's kind of a coincidence or are there any kind of takeaways or um things that we can learn from trauma treatment that might help here well i think well yes yes actually and i know i did say before that that this is not trauma it's not caused by trauma but maybe i spoke too soon um, what do I know? Maybe it is caused by trauma. I don't think it is in everybody's case. Mm. For example, many people have this and have no specific trauma, at least that they can remember. But, you know, what right. is trauma? I mean, birth is trauma. If, if we go back to the old analytic psychology days, you know, you know, somebody's anything can be traumatic, you know, to the system of having a, a flu or whatever when you're young can be trauma. And this is something I spoke to Steve Porges about. He's really, I don't know if you know who he is, be very, very clear yeah. uh, about, about trauma. He'd be a great person for you to have on too. Um, so who really knows? But um, what is very interesting is that the me what should be studied, and there, I think this is happening now, which I'm really excited about, um, Daniela Schiller, who was a student of Joe Ledoux, who I was talking before, and now runs and has for quite some time her own lab at Mount Sinai, which is a hospital, very great hospital in New York. Oh, yeah. And when Danielle was working in Joe's lab in, I guess it was the early 2000s again, they, it was another student of Joe's, and I, Kareem, oh gosh, I'm not, he has his own lab at McGill now, and I can't remember his name, last name, and I'm so I'll sorry. I'll look it up. Yeah, okay, that's fine. so 
you know, they were studying me how memory consolidates. And, and I believe it was Kareem who had this idea, well, if you consolidate memory, maybe you can reconsolidate it and change the association of the connection between your body response and the stimuli that's bringing on the trauma. So memory reconsolidation. So I, at the time, got really excited. And I'm like, and they were working on it for trauma and in rodents, I should say. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is the cure for misophonia. This is it. This thing's gonna work. And I annoyed Joe for, I don't know how many years. Uh, then I annoyed Zach. I'm like, someone has to study this. Someone has to study this. And finally, you know, I talked to the people at the Misophonia Research Fund. I'm like, please, please, like, you know, talk to Daniela Schiller because she is the only, one of the only people now besides Cream at McGill studying memory reconsolidation in humans, not rodents. Um, it is a very tricky thing to get to work. Now, it was kind of a, the whole thing was abolished, all the work. Um, originally because people mistook it for changing your memory and deleting memories. It's not that. It's simply changing the body response to the memory. Oh, interesting. So it was uh, yeah. it was the reg regulations that you can't do this research anymore? Well, it went, it was, I don't know if the regulations actually, it was actually regulatory, but it was, you know, it, it was not well accepted and Maybe after the movie Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, that's, you got shut down. That's you should if you look. Yeah, Joe was involved in trying to correct the understanding of that. It was a whole, Interesting. whole one of my favorite movies, but total yes, <laughs> and and yes, yes. So, um, but Danielle, you know, continued, um, and I think, and I think I saw this. If I saw this correctly, and if I didn't, I apologize. But I think she is now studying memory processes in misophonia. And um, this has been my great hope. The problem is uh, there's somebody also in Amsterdam named Merle Kent who uses memory reconsolidation uh, for phobias. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I have been told even, you know, by Joe, this memory reconsolidation in humans in and of itself is not developed enough yet to mm -hmm. be trying it um you know for this that or the other thing but going back to trauma this the way trauma memories work where the external stimuli causes the neurophysiological response with emotional and cognitive consequences that's similar to misophonia. And in yeah. fact, there was a paper that Mercedes um, did with uh, Romke Rao in uh, Amsterdam, where they found an association between the symptoms at least were associated with PTSD. So I shouldn't have spoken so abruptly and said, no, 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 this is not PTSD or caused by PTSD. I think, I don't know the answer really, but Again, outside stimuli causing this physiologic reaction steeped in the memory association between the outside stimuli and the amygdala. That is similar. 
that we know. Yeah, I no, this is clear. I hope that was clear. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad we went down this uh, this this path because uh, yeah, you, first of all, you mentioned a couple of people. I'm, I'm scribbling their names down now that I need to. Oh, I, I, you, can, but, uh, I can. Yeah, um, names yeah. no, but uh, yeah, I know. Mean, I just brought it up because it's you know looking at. I was looking back recently because it's been about a hundred episodes. I was looking back at like you know some of the common patterns and. One of them has been kind of like trauma, unresolved trauma, you know, uh, angry parents, drinking, um, uh, uh, a death in the family of a loved one, and then Miss Funny starting right out or being noticed right after. So I just want to ask you if, if uh, um, yeah, if, you know, what you thought about that. So, yeah, this is some interesting, uh, interesting research that I'd not heard of before. Parent blaming because... I think parent blaming, and maybe this is because I don't want to be blamed. Um, no, but I think parent blaming is easy because parents are usually <laughs> the people from whom your worst trigger sounds emanate. Um, and, and then I think about my kids, you know, and only one of them had this problem. So there's the other side of it. Um, but, you know, right. I, think I always say we only have one sympathetic nervous system. So once it's aroused and once it's raw, think of it that way, anything can come get it excited. And I mean that excited in a bad way. Right. So right. you know what I'm saying? So yeah, if you're already in any kind of over or, you know, overstimulated state, if you're if you're, you know, just an oversensitive person, if your parents are you know, your household is having issues. If you, you know, you have a bad year with a bad teacher, whatever, you know, if you're going to, who knows, anything, you're revved up already. So, yeah, it could. Yeah, that's the thing. No two people, yeah, have the same experiences. Like even, even siblings might see it, whatever situation in a different, in a different light or different angle or different kind of state of mind going into it. So. I think, you know, there, look, we don't know if there's a genetic component it certainly looks like it just anecdotally, it's, you know, I can. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. You know, so it could be that it, you know, we also, people come into the world. I know this, I, I'll tell you, I used to think a lot more, much more behaviorally like, oh, you know, when I was a young parent, I really thought I was going to have a lot to do with how my kids turned out. And then once the three of them got here, I was like, oh my goodness, I, they came into the world with, you know, what, what psychologists call temperaments, which is another way to say kind of, you know, just the way they respond to stimuli. I mean, I had one that was so calm. I had one that, that, that was really terrified of everything, which was my misophonia one. And the other one who just seemed to hate being a baby, you know, <laughs> and, and, they, and they were just, that's how they came into the world. And, and I was like, oh, it had nothing to do with me, at least in terms of my, you know, mm -hmm. parenting. So that's when I took a full swing and I was like out of like anything, you know, behavior. I mean, I'm not saying that there aren't merits to behaviorism, but I, I took a full swing and I was like, oh, wow. You know, it was, it was an awakening for me. I've always thought about it. If there is a genetic component, it's maybe the environmental may or may not activate a potential genetic component where they're not they're not mutually exclusive but they're not um it's not one or the other necessarily well i think you know what you're talking about is certainly epigenetics and it looks mm. like you know in the field of genetics people you know geneticists are now talking about for the most part not nature 
versus nurture, but right. nature via nurture, which is, I think, what you're saying. Right, right. Yeah, ultimately, yeah, our genetics are determined maybe over a longer time scale in terms of humanity. They're affected by the environment and nature. I mean, yeah. nurture. <laughs> right, so, right. Um, so maybe go, um, I'm curious about you, you, you want to talk about like how you helped start um, this, the, the team, uh, you know, how you met up with Zach and started that, um, um, started that research group. Uh, there probably wasn't a lot of people that uh, kind of, who were kind of thinking along the same lines as you around then. Uh, wondering like, were you kind of talking to everybody and then suddenly, you know, Zach was most receptive. Yeah, I'm just curious how. Yeah. <laughs> I had a small family foundation at the time. And I was like, okay, um, the only way I'm going to do anything here is if I offer, like, not, not that I'm saying this about Money. Zach. <laughs> no, but he was like yeah. my, he's like one of my best friends, and I'm not saying this at oh, all. Oh, he's great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love him dearly. But um, this is how hard it was to get any psychologist to respond, even with money, okay? Um, you said the word sensory, and everyone ran, okay? Like in other, in different directions, you said that in psychology. Um, it was like, I don't believe in sensory was kind of the thing. And I'm like, hi, you know, do you believe that you're hearing? Do you believe that you're smelling? Because those right. are senses, you know? Anyway, so, um, you know, I, I was like, okay, so maybe if I take some of this foundation money um, and I offer it to do a couple of studies, maybe that's the only way to do this. And um, And the woman who I was working with in the Sensory Processing Disorders Foundation got really angry with me and she's like how could you do this like how could you not give this money to us and i'm like look i've got like one or two shots here it's not a large foundation and if this doesn't get into psychology this is just going to get worse and worse because people are going to psychologists and being told they have you know this behavior disorder or this personality disorder when in fact um i think that this is a sensory disorder um so I stuck like the word funding in the into the yeah. um, email and I wrote about 10 psychologists that would you be interested and I was looking specifically for borderline personality researchers because mm -hmm. I had a hypothesis that part of borderline personality was reactivity to auditory stimuli that part of the affect dysregulation was that and or that one could develop borderline person or was one could be at risk for borderline personality because one is always being dysregulated by sound. Right, right. So that was my hypothesis. And so I, you know, I'm writing this and like nobody, literally no one wrote me back. Except, and then like a couple, maybe a week later, I get an email from Zach. He's like, I'd be interested, Z. I'm like, oh, he looks kind of, he sounds kind of cool too. And that's how it all started. And um, so the first paper is, uh, was auditory and tactile stimuli. And he was, I remember he was like, oh my gosh, every, almost every single person that we studied is sensitive to auditory stimuli. So it was like, you know, I thought this is big breakthrough, big breakthrough, big breakthrough. The paper came, the paper went, that was that. 
many years go by, you know, thank goodness Pavel Jostrebov comes around and gives this thing. And I didn't know if you gave something a name, it could turn everything around or else I would have just given this a name. But, you know, so that's that's how it started. And then Zach and I have been working together ever since with some breaks in between. But, you know, he's amazing and he's done amazing work and he is, you know, he's great. What can I say? I'm very, very lucky that he wrote back. Yeah, no, it's good to hear. Uh, that's, he didn't that's go great. running. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't flee. Right. Well, he doesn't have misophonia, so he's, he's not a fight or flight kind of guy. I guess. No, he is not. He's very <laughs> calm, very well regulated. Right, right. Well, I, I guess, um, you know, we have a few minutes left. And I know we, we could go on for hours, I'm sure. I'd love to have you back on in the, in the future. Um, do you uh, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about uh, your, your your current book uh, kind of where we can get it kind of any okay. seminars you have coming up and um yeah sure. there maybe any final thoughts there sure uh so i wrote a book for parents called regulate reason reassure and the idea you know it's a it's a no no we're not we'll call it a manual it's a guidebook for parents uh however clinicians certainly can read it anyone can read it but it is talking about these basic principles about how regulation has to come first, then you can use cognition, reasoning, and weave it in. And I even talk a lot about how I do weave in cognition. So it would be great, you know, to, to come back and talk about that. But, and then of course, reassurance is obvious because I mean, what this does to a family, what this does to a couple, it's, mm -hmm. you have to have lived it to know. It is so destructive. To family life and, you know again i work with children and families mostly so so that book is available on amazon and it's free if you have unlimited kindle and then the other thing i started to do you know i, I get a lot of phone calls and a lot of emails and it occurred to me that you know one of the most important things is understanding what misophonia is and what it isn't to the extent that we know at this point and you know my work with Shaylin. Um, we do what she does all my web it started with her doing my websites, then we yeah. did advocacy together and it you know, just so we've been together for forever and she's she's an amazing I've never seen anyone work so hard, I have to say. Yeah, so, I, everyone has read her stuff and, oh, and she's, yeah, she's, she's a huge advocate and I'm hope to have her on soon. Un, yeah. Just incredible. Such a hard worker what she has done for this disorder. And so um, you know, I said to her one day, I said, you know, I, why am I not doing classes? I said, you know, I'm teaching every time I start with a new family, I'm going over the same thing. It's costing them a ton of money. I can't see as many people as I want to. There's got to be a, a better way to do this. So she took my book and she made it into a presentation. Mm -hmm. um, thank you, Shailen. And I do these classes now. So it's much more efficient for parents and clinicians and you know they don't have to like pay for single sessions with me and I get to reach so many more people and they get you know a free copy of the book obviously mm -hmm. and it seems to be working out really well and this is at misphoniaeducation.com and we have a small group coming up in January and we also have 
updates from Duke Research and other researchers. So you can see it all on misophoniaeducation.com. We're, we're, and we're open to any suggestions too, because we're always trying to think of new ways to efficiently reach people. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing now. I still see people privately. And you know, I often tell them, take the class first. And then if you have any more specific questions about your particular child, then we'll go over that. And now we're getting into also adults because there's just so many adults that need help as well. So I'm developing classes for adults as well. Okay. So your focus has been, seems to be, has been on, on, on children and and families, which is huge because, you know, there there are a lot of parents right in and they're just kind of like, have no idea what to do in there. Kind of fell into that just because like nobody else was doing it. And you're and a parent who have somebody and I'm with misophonia. Yeah. But now I'm also an adult with misophonia, so <laughs> <laughs> and an old lady with misophonia. So now I'd love to start doing some things from that perspective too. Um, you know, especially couples. You know, because I am in a couple. I am in, within a couple, and you know, I have found ways, coping skills that I use mm-hmm. myself that I think would be very helpful oh absolutely oh well we should definitely get you on <laughs> again um love that. yeah jennifer and uh, yeah i want to say uh, remind people this is jennifer uh, dr jennifer brout because i know people have seen that name and many things they've read and things online so uh yeah just want to thank you in person for you know everything yeah, you. obviously everything you've done um oh, all the places that you've written articles and, and all, all the seminars and work you've done um there's, you know, not not a lot of people have had this you know, the impact you've had in terms of getting awareness out. So it's it's been life changing for many people. I have to say thank you to uh, to Zach and to Shaylin and to you. This was such a great idea doing a podcast deal. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Such an honor to speak with you. Everyone listening, if you liked this episode, please share it and don't forget to leave a quick review or just hit the five stars wherever you listen to this podcast. You can hit me up by email at hello at misophoniapodcast.com or go to the website, misophoniapodcast.com. It's even easier to send a message on Instagram at misophoniapodcast or Facebook, and uh, we're at Misophonia Show on Twitter. Don't forget to support the show by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash misophoniapodcast. Music, as always, is by Moby. And until next week, Wishing you peace and quiet.